Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. My first guest this week is Alan Alda. The Alan Alda. Hawkeye from MASH, Arnold Vinnick from The West Wing, Academy Award and Tony nominee, six-time Emmy winner, and lately encroaching on my territory as a podcast host. The 86-year-old Alda has headed up the show Clear and Vivid for four years now. Not as, you know, a way for Alda to talk with his friends about their latest movie or the good old days. Sure, some of the guests are friends of his, but there's also scientists, researchers, writers he admires. One listen to Claire and Vivid and you can tell he's found his second passion as podcast host. Before we get into my interview with Alan Alda, here's a little bit from the show. In this clip, he's talking with another legendary performer, Mel Brooks. I've known you, known you for over 50 years. Yes, you have. And we met, do you remember we met 60 years ago? Oh my God. On a late night radio show in New York. With yeah. Barry Gray, Barry Gray show. Oh, oh, gee, you remember, oh my God. I remember it very, I remember how generous you were because mm. I had just he, opened in a play that night. And you had seen the play, and it was a terrible play. Yeah. And you said, this play is great. I know funny, and this play is funny. Yeah. And, and it really helped us because it, it didn't close until the next night. Oh, <laughs> I kept it open another night. Yeah. <laughs> another whole day. <laughs> yeah. And you were good, except you told me a crazy story that you're, you were wearing a robe in the play, and the robe was on fire that morning. The, the robe caught fire. Alan Alda, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to hear Mel, too. Oh, that we all could only have interview subjects we've known for 50 years. <laughs> well, you have to start. live 50 years first. First, you have to be alive for 50 years. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Alan, you and I have known each other for over five minutes. And right. I'm really it's been excited. A too, and I'm sorry I have to go now. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. <laughs> Um, well, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy to get to talk to you. Um, Thank you. You know, you had done, you had done some semi-journalism. Uh, you know, Scientific American Frontiers involved a lot of interviewing. Um, you know, you'd done a lot of talking to people and a lot of developing communication skills and others. Uh, but what did you have to learn to host an interview show? Well, I learned most of what I had to learn on Scientific American Frontiers because except for sitting in to substitute for talk show hosts once in a while, I hadn't really had much experience interviewing. I had a lot of experience being interviewed. But one of the first things I learned was not to assume that what I thought I knew was real to put it into questions instead of make assertions. You know, you're, I know your grandmother died. No, well, that was my Aunt Tilly. Oh, well, I'm sorry about that too. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work out so well if you think you know what they know. It's better, it's better to ask questions. It's better, it's better questions. What I learned, what I learned on Scientific American Frontiers that I've applied to everything else I've ever done whether it's in front of a microphone or at a dinner table, 
is to listen and respond to what the person is saying, not to go in with a list of 10 questions and ask the next next question regardless of what they've just said, but on the contrary, follow them wherever it leads. And I learned that from improvising, did a lot of improvising as a young actor. And it, it turns out to be good at the dinner table too. Did you learn that lesson that you described the hard way? Did you make an assertion that made you look foolish? I didn't look foolish so much as the the scientist I was talking to looked really bereft. <laughs> <laughs> it would, I, I, I said, well, I was, it was a, a solar panel that would power a car. And I said, well, uh, amazing that you've done all this just with off-the-shelf parts. And he said, no, we, we built that. We made the parts. <laughs> you know, he looks really sad. I worked hard on those parts. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I wanted to get comfortable with him, and I put my hand on it. He said, please don't touch it. You could ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was walking in thinking I was going to make contact and, and not – Still not good enough at it yet, but those those were good learning times. I'm glad you brought up improv because I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, you know, you were a member of the Compass Players, who were, you know, one of the foundational groups of improv. I was going to say in the United States, but uh, in the world, um, co-founded by Paul Sills, uh, whose mother was essentially the inventor of, of what we now call improv. She wasn't the inventor of improvising, obviously, but, uh, you know, that was the, that was the source of the river. Um, how did you end up in that group? I wasn't in the first group that was called Compass. Um, one of the co-founders. <laughs> Alan, did you notice that I literally just did the thing that you learned? Yeah, I, I, I heard you doing it during the question. I, I, I didn't want to call attention to it. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll get it after a couple of thousand interviews. It's not that hard. You, you'll thank you. It. Thank you. If only I had been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, people make that mistake often because Compass – predated Second City, and uh, uh, David Shepard was one of the founders of it. And years later, he started a company up called Compass that I was in. Diana Sands, the actress, was in, and Honey Shepard, his wife, who became very popular on the, the, uh, the show about gangsters. I can't say the name right now. What's the name? The Sopranos? Sopranos, yeah. And uh, thank you very much. And uh, th this this company of Compass was in the basement of a hotel in the cabaret they made when they dug a space under the hotel. And it was the same hotel where John Kennedy was giving his press conferences during the morning. And at night, we, in our show, we did a an impromptu press conference where I played Kennedy. And the reporters who had asked him questions in the morning were down in the basement at night asking me some of the same questions. But I hadn't read the newspaper yet. It had, they hadn't been printed in the paper yet because they only asked him that morning. So I didn't know what they were talking about sometimes. I'd have to have standard uh, saves to get, to get out of a mess. Like what? 
we're, uh, I can't do the accent anymore. We have a commission working on that, you know, and <laughs> same kind of save that the president, whoever the president is, will use. Had you improvised before? No, that was my introduction to it. And that was not the kind of improvising that Viola Sills invented. Um, it was comedy improv, and it was what I would call guts improv. You, uh, Your job on stage was to just try to get a laugh every few seconds. And we didn't train in Viola's method. So it was always a scary experience. Viola Spolin, who, who wrote the seminal book, Improvisation for the Theater, really, really would transform you. And I worked with Paul Sills at Second City for about six months. I think we did, we got together twice a week, a small group of actors. And we, uh, we really went through Viola's book painstakingly. She was, she was Paul Sills' mother, and yet he would carry the book around like the Bible and literally read every bit of directions. Here's how, we're, here's how Viola says we should do this, and that kind of thing. And there were some wonderful actors in the group. Olympia Dukakis was in the group. A number, number of really and pe- people who didn't just drop in. I mean, we worked hard at it. And it changed me, very much changed me as a person, but as an actor, because any time I was in any company with other actors where I could work it out, where we would sit together before a performance and just talk and kid each other and laugh together, the the performance would always be so much better. And, And actors get to realize that and... Once you once you do it a few times, nobody wants to not do it anymore. That that becomes the preparation for the play. We did that on Mash. Sat around between shots and just laughed at each other. I'm sure you do a lot of preparation for your interviews with communicators and scientists. But what's something that stands out in your mind that you did not expect to hear from someone? I'm trying to think of something that surprised me. You know, it's a funny thing. Does this this happen to you? After I do an interview, I can't remember what anybody said. (laughs) I'm I'm so involved in listening and responding and, and at the same time making sure in another part of my head that this is following a trajectory that's going to make sense then I don't remember what we said. And then I'll listen to it when it's posted on the web. And I'll say, gee, well, that was really interesting. And I'll, and I'll, get to a certain, <laughs> I'll get to a certain point and I'll say, I wonder why he said that. And, and I'll hear myself on the recording say, I wonder why you said that. <laughs> I'm, I'm tracking the thinking, but it's all new to me. So I, I, can't, I can't answer that question. Even more to get into with the great Alan Alda after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Alan Alda. 
The Emmy Award-winning actor and director played Hawkeye on MASH, Arnold Vinnick on The West Wing, Jack Donaghy's dad on a few very good episodes of 30 Rock, and of course, so many other incredible characters. Alda was also the host of the PBS series Scientific American Frontiers for over 20 years. These days, he has a podcast, Clear and Vivid, with Alan Alda, is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back into our conversation. Look, I'm going to I'm going to presume, I'm going to stipulate that you're excited about all your guests on Clear and Vivid, but um who were you particularly excited about? Like who did you put at the top of the list when you had a big um whiteboard meeting at the beginning, who would you want to talk to about communicating? You know, I I think I just remembered the answer to your question. Oh, let's hear it. Because when when Paul McCartney said he wanted he was willing to be on the show, that was a a great moment because I I love his work. I think he he writes some of the most beautiful melodies that we've ever heard, and he changed the culture along with his colleagues. So I was I was very happy to, about that, and everybody in the studio where we were working at the time was very excited and I came into the room where we were going to do the recording and I saw they had put it it stood against the wall three guitars and a piano <laughs> I, I said what are you doing what is this they said well you never know maybe he'll play something I said he's going to be upset that we have this put out for him we got to put it away and just then he walks into the room and he sees the guitars, and he gets a really dismal look on his face. And he says, what's this? And I thought, oh, here goes the whole interview now. So I said, I'm really sorry. Everybody was very excited. No, nobody expects you to pick up an instrument. Forget that. Let's just have fun. And we started out having a lot of fun doing vocal exercises together at the beginning of the, of the interview. <laughs> And then I was talking about his melodies and I was asking him how he arrives at a melody. And he said, well, look, there's a piano over there. I'll show you what I mean. And he starts playing chords on the piano and he starts fooling around searching for a melody. And it, I'll tell you, that came out of the fact that we were able to make contact with one another in the same way that you do in an improv. And this extraordinary moment happened where he was in the moment searching for a melody. And I, that, was, that was something I really didn't expect. What have you talked about on either your podcast or on Scientific American Frontiers that was the hardest for you to understand such that, that you could help communicate it to the audience? Well, my, I, I always have distinguished the things I do from actual journalists um, in this way. They really take on the responsibility of absorbing the material and communicating it to the audience. I try to understand it well enough to ask questions that aren't too stupid <laughs> so that the scientists can communicate it to the audience themselves, I I always ask a question and ask them to tell me where I'm wrong. Because 
chances are I'm going to be wrong. I haven't spent my life on these things the way they have. But I do remember how hard it was even to frame the questions the first time I heard that the vacuum of space is exploding with particles all the time, popping out of the vacuum and then disappearing. I said, no, a vacuum is a vacuum. Nothing comes from nothing. Shakespeare said that several times. Nothing from nothing comes. <laughs> so I, the, the, the producers of, uh, of Scientific American Frontiers, especially Graham Chedd, who now produces my podcast, Clear and Vivid, uh, said, no, you, you got to allow for this. This is what's hard about modern physics. It's a vacuum, but it's not that nothing's happening. Stuff is happening in the vacuum. It was really hard to accept. One time I admitted to Neil deGrasse Tyson that I was scared of the infinite nature of space, and he just made fun of me. Well, it's wor- for me, it was even worse than that. I wasn't, I'm not scared by I know. I knew a psychologist who was scared by infinity. I couldn't, have, couldn't understand why. But what I find really hard to get is that there are several kinds of infinities, and some infinities are bigger than others. How could that possibly be? <laughs> for the for the at home listener, Alan Alda's face alive with incredulity right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that weird? If an infinity oh, goes on forever, weird, bordering how many, on upsetting. How many forevers can there be? <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying to me. So I think there were some things I would only understand if I had started learning the math when I was a kid and kept at it daily until now. And then I probably still wouldn't understand it. I was going around... Uh, to a number of countries doing a show about the cosmos. And I, everywhere I went, I was, I, at that time, I was really trying to get a grasp of the fourth dimension. And I said to the scientists at every place I went, well, I, I can't picture the fourth dimension. How can I picture it? And, and one, one of them said to me, what makes you think you're the one person out of seven billion who can picture the fourth dimension? <laughs> I don't want to have one of my favorite performers of all time on my show without talking a little bit about art and performance. So let's talk about show business for a minute here. Um, your dad was a performer. Uh, when when you were a kid, how much of the time was he on the road and how much of the time were you on the road? Well, when I was born, he was in burlesque, and we were all, the three of us, my mother, my father, and I were on the road every week to a new burlesque theater. And my earliest memories, two and a half and three, are uh, standing in the wings watching burlesque, watching the comics and the chorus girls and the strippers. And... uh I, I saw performing, and they even carried me on stage as a joke when I was six months old. So I'd, I'm, I'm used to being on the stage and learning about it from standing in the wings. 
What was your dad's act? He was a singer and a straight man in burlesque. And he did uh, toured in nightclubs where he did a lot of sketches and sang. And when I was about seven, he got a job at Warner Brothers as a contract actor where they sign you up for seven years and then they sort of own your career for seven years. And the first movie he made was a huge musical on the, the life of George Gershwin, and he played Gershwin. And it was a hit around the world, and he became a movie star in a minute. Then they put him in lousy movies for seven years and he didn't resurface until the end of the seven years when he did the leading part in, in Guys and Dolls on Broadway. So he had a really up and down career. And there were, there were times when he was traveling with a show. But, but we traveled a lot as a family. The other day, my son showed me a picture that my eight-year-old son showed me a picture that he drew of me. Um, and it was me and a microphone. And I was saying, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then from the microphone or from the headphones was coming, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it made me think about like, you know, what does a kid understand about what their parents do at work, especially when it's show business? So, like, what do you think you understood and, and didn't understand about what your dad did for work? We lived in a closed system. Everybody we knew was either a comic or a stripper. And we'd get on the floor and shoot craps on the rug, and they'd be laughing all the time. We'd be on the train going from one town to another. An especially long trip would be called the two-bottle jump. <laughs> and I thought that was the world. I thought that everybody was in show business. And then when I saw people who weren't in show business, I realized that or thought that we were the elite and these poor people were just civilians. You know, as a child, I didn't, I didn't know any better. But it is it is funny how you you soak up you soak up the atmosphere of the family business really easily when it's show business because it's it's seductive. The people come to watch the show. So when my father and I did Abbott and Costello's routines at the Hollywood Canteen in California for soldiers and sailors who were on the way to the Pacific during the war. That really clinched it. I, I knew for sure I wanted to be an actor. Up until then, I wanted to be a writer. What was it like when your dad signed a seven-year contract and um, you had a regular life with regular people in a regular place? I mean, uh, to the extent that, um, you know, Hollywood is a regular place or whatever. Um, what was it like to just go to school with kids who had, had never shot craps on a train? <laughs> we, we, um, I didn't go to school. I had an unusual childhood. When I was seven, I got polio. And there was a long period of uh, 
treatment. And then my parents had me tutored, and it seemed easier to travel if I was tutored. So until junior high school, I didn't go to a regular school. And it was really weird the first day I went to school and I saw all these kids in the, in the, in the school playground. And I thought, look at that. What, look at the size of that audience. I, I, thought, there was, I thought they needed entertaining. So that was a, that was more 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 than entertaining. It was an invitation for them to to beat up on me. Yeah, I mean that works and it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I would suggest it. It mainly doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I thought about as I was reading about your early life is that, um, you know, your mother was a paranoid schizophrenic. And there's not a lot of kids who grow up with one parent in show business where the parent who's in show business is the reliable one. Um, when did you, when did you feel like you had any understanding of, of what to expect from your mom? I don't know if I ever really had a defense against her mental illness until I was almost 50. It was it, it was difficult because in the beginning nobody knew what it was. And then when it was clear that it was a serious problem, we didn't talk about it. There were just the three of us in the family, and my father and I never discussed her illness or even acknowledged that she had an illness. We just sort of tried to cope. But you have to understand, that was a time in the entire culture where you didn't talk about mental illness. So... I, I didn't really have the tools to to deal with it internally. I was angry that I didn't feel I had a mother. And she loved me. It was later after she died that I, I, I realized much more than I ever had before that she, in her in her own way and in spite of in spite of how she saw the world and thought everybody, including me, was trying to kill her. In spite of all of that, she did, she did really love me. But it's hard for a kid, you know, to translate the behavior into the knowledge that can give you a working forgiveness. And I mean, it's hard for a kid Not to know, you know, not to know what to expect. Yeah, very hard. My my dad had very severe post-traumatic stress disorder. 
and oh. he loved me very, very much. And I imagine was probably more, more functional th than your mother. But, um, you know, one of the things that I had to come to terms with as an adult was understanding how significant it was that for that reason, I couldn't rely on my dad, even though he was a good guy who loved me. Was was there anger? Oh yeah. On his part, your part. Oh yeah. Huh. It's tough because, under the best of circumstances, at least in our culture, when when kids get into their teens, there's a lot of uh, poor communication. But if you have this as an additional factor, really tough. And your mother having been paranoid, that, that's a really, that's a really scary thing, especially in the context of adolescence. I remember, you know, you have that teenager feeling of like, how can I make my parents understand me? Right. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that they can, that they can see and accept the same stuff that you see and accept as being, you know, truth in the world. It makes it a billion times harder. Yeah, I sometimes think that with whatever quirks I retained, I managed to be able to live a, a pretty healthy, <clears throat> a pretty healthy life. Are there things? in particular that you learned from your dad and his career, both like in the meta sense, like, well, this is how you get by in show business broadly, or in the like really concrete sense, like here's a good way to cheat out to the audience when you're selling a punchline or whatever. He was very helpful when we were, I was nine and he was teaching me the Abin Costello routine, who's on first. And I would have a tendency to wander all around the stage while I was talking. And he would say, just stand still. <laughs> and the other piece of advice that I remember from those days was, if you're going to go into show business, take care of your legs because your legs get tired. Sit down every chance you get. <laughs> and actually, if you look at many scenes on mash i have i not only sit down i have my feet up on the colonel's desk because when i start the scene in the beginning of the day rehearsing i know that wherever i put my feet they're going to stay there for the rest of the day while we do all the shots involved in the scene <laughs> so i don't want to be in a standing position for 12 hours so i did follow that advice <laughs> figure out where to plant it. Yeah. We'll wrap up with Alan Alda in just a minute. After the break, we'll talk about what it was like when MASH, the TV show that gave him his big break, the TV show that made him an Emmy Award winner and a legend, came to an end. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with actor and podcast host, Alan Alda. As I was considering the arc of your career, I thought, well, gosh, you know, 
you worked on MASH for a long time. And even people who get to work on a really successful TV show maybe don't don't get to work on one that's as good as MASH always. Um, you know, MASH is one of the best television shows that's ever been made. And over the course of the many years that you worked on MASH, your role on the show creatively grew. You were you became a writer. You, you know, you were writing for the show, you were directing on the show. Um and I imagine that growth helped keep it fulfilling. But at the end of the long run, a long run on a television show where you're the, you know, uh, you're the top bill on the most watched television episode of all time. Uh, that's like a chance to be like, uh, okay. So now that that thing that I couldn't get off of is done, not that you wanted to, but they're just, it was a rocket that you were attached to. Um, what do I choose? How did you face that? As the show ended, I was writing a movie that I would direct and act in. So I just, I had something to occupy myself. But the uh, the problem with when you and I I passed I passed this experience on to other people who were ending a a long spate of very intense work. It's a little like stepping off a speeding train. And you're, you you can feel a little lost that you don't have to get up every day at the crack of dawn and not finish work until it's dark outside. You, you, you have to organize your life a different way. And it took me a few months to do that. So when friends are retiring, I, I always use that speeding train image and I say, I hope you have something to occupy you as fully as you had your work before. I still act from time to time. If if it seems if it seems like it'll be fun. But the podcast that I do gives me so much pleasure and it's enjoyed by people and it's not that doesn't have the the tens of millions of people every week listening that that the television show had, but it doesn't matter to me. It never mattered to me how big the audience was, as long as something took place between us. And the show does actually very well. And I get a lot of really interesting feedback. But in the, it, not only do I have the pleasure of, as you do, the pleasure of the interview, the, the give and take, the back and forth, the, the improv quality of it, I talk to really interesting people like, like McCartney, like Yo-Yo Ma, Tom Hanks, and people you might not have heard of, like Christian Picciolini, who had been a a skinhead and regularly beat people up because they were Jewish or black, and once realized that it was a person he was doing this to, and he wanted to stop and got out of it and then dedicated his life to helping other skinheads leave the movement. 
And it's an example of communication that you don't often think of as, as a job for communication. But that was a fascinating story. And it takes him sometimes two years to help somebody leave, to get the, to get the point of view that enables them to go. The guy, another guy who was at one time the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. And he had all these communication skills that he would use to get a hostage released. And he said that those skills he had developed to get a hostage released were very useful in a marriage. So you never know where you're going to get an angle that you really didn't expect just talking to people about their work. So I have, I have the best time. And, 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 and occasionally we have fascinating scientists on. But I love it that we, we talk about communicating and relating in the loosest possible way. So it's, it, it applies to how musicians make music, how actors act. And I'm so interested in people who do more than one thing. Very, very senior scientists who are also singers and dancers and musicians, and sometimes professionally so, not just as a hobby. Isn't that interesting how people can be talented in such varied ways? Well, Alan Alda, I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been fun talking with you. You, you, uh, you do listen and you, you ask f from listening, which is really fun. Alan Alda. His podcast is called Clear and Vivid. He just interviewed Bette Midler on there, so go give it a listen. And also, Bette Midler, come on our show. I always want to have Bette Midler on this show. I know. I'm, not, I'm no Alan Alda, but let's make this happen. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I've been filling those reusable shopping bags with grapefruits and hanging them from my fence. And uh, yesterday, somebody just took a full bag of grapefruits. And I'm just like, more power to them. <laughs> Take those grapefruits. I have three trees. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. A big welcome to Tabitha Myers, our newest production fellow at MaximumFun.org. Special thanks to Alan Alda for recording himself at his home. He did a great job. We get booking help on the show from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, written and recorded by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there, give us a follow, and we'll share with you all our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.